Welcome everyone to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people who have ancestral and professional ties to the land. I am Melissa Camara. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Charnick, uh, Extension Specialist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management. Like we always say that our opinions don't reflect those uh, of our employers or funders. We just like to allow people to share their perspective uh, on their connection relationship to places. We're asking everyone, please rate and review. We want to know. I I mean, it's really selfish, actually. I want to know what people think. We have had a few. And before we read one of our reviews, which is really awesome, we do want to tell people that, you know, in our national rankings, because this is funny, (laughs) apparently a few weeks ago, we were a number 145 behind songbirding, a birding by your podcast. I know we can beat those guys. Come on, people. I know we can. The other one was we were behind the sweaty penguin. Number yeah. 232. So I know that with your help, we can. <laughs> we the sweaty can, penguin is beating us. Come on. We can beat them. Yeah. And just to prove to you how much we appreciate reviews, we want to read this one from Ina Boy, who says, A deep view into people who shape Hawaii. Melissa and Clay are ideal hosts to interview people whose work and passion is for Aina across Hawaii, their wit and intellect. Copy that. <laughs> bring I got out that. the stories. It's people. your wit and intellect. <laughs> <laughs> they bring out the stories people hold that shape their work and hence shape Hawaii, especially the latest episode or one of the recent ones with Keomoku Kapu, which really created a space for him to share his vision of post disaster Lahaina. That was so important. Mahalo, Aina Boy, for putting that yeah, thank review you. out there for us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Recently, we have been interviewing just some legends in conservation and Skippy Howe is definitely one of them. He is retired with almost 40 years working for the Department of Land and Natural Resources as the aquatic biologist on Maui, um, working in the Division of Aquatic Resources. It was just so fun to talk to him um, and he had so much to share. We was yes. it, sometimes these interviews it's hard to get a word in edge because there's so much the the knowledge kind of pouring out and so many stories. And we did ask some really fun questions. Um, but then they would just sort of spin off into stories that you couldn't have anticipated. And yeah, it was really exciting to, to chat. And the the importance of stream ecology and we sort of touched on this a bit, but this idea of how directly it connects the lands from Malka to Makai and the ocean and this, how that kind of led him into this work. You know, it's just such a crazy, cool uh, way to understand the connectivity uh, across landscapes. Yes. This is our very first interview with someone in the aquatic marine world. So I'm pretty excited for that. I mean, this is not my area at all. Um, have we not done anyone in Marine? We have zero. Not... Wow, weird. <laughs> so here we are, better <laughs> late than never. <laughs> and Skippy is like the guy to talk about so yeah. many different things. Everything from like monitoring fish to looking at the animals in the streams to the kalo and you know traditional cultural practices and farming. Even the political decisions yes. about diversions and what goes into that and maybe what we could be doing better. Yeah. Yeah, it for sure ties into some of our water conversations. How could it not, right, with our previous guests? So we're excited to introduce our next guest, Skippy Howe, formerly with the Division of Aquatic Resources for the Department of Land and Natural Resources in Hawaii. 
Claire, I was telling Claire, maybe I was texting you, Clay, um, that we had talked last night for the first time. And you were saying that you worked for DLNR for 39 years and 11 months. So just under 40 or something, which like, that's amazing. Oh, 30, 36. But uh, I bought oh. back time. You know, when you have vacation time. Oh, my God. And buy back into the system. And then so total. <laughs> Came out to 39 years, 11 months. Wow. Wait, so does that mean that you had four years of vacation or that you never used? Is that what that means? Yeah. I converted oh and it back. Yeah. Actually, I told you I also had comp time. And the oh comp time, I just God. forgot about it. I just said, no, that's okay. To take the comp time and then take the official time off. That's incredible. It's been fun. Yeah. Well, I wanted to go to a neighbor island, first of all. Um, what happened was the traffic was getting bad on Oahu. Oh, yeah. What was happening was that we were then scheduling our field work just to avoid getting stuck in traffic. Right, and right. Have to come back after hours and then have to finish and clean up from the field. And then so I, I've been real fortunate just to be on a neighbor island and then be able to to work at night and go out go out in the field by myself and right. do work. So that's why I did the stream stuff. I, like I said, I, I grew up in Kaneohe. And so that's that's one of the things that I started to do here. And then uh, studying the organisms, I work with the post larvae and then what well, the animals in the stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, what they call amphidrom- amphidromous life cycle. Mm-hmm. I started studying that and then try to understand because at that time we had a lot of plantation and the diversions. Right. Um, so I had to work with the diversions in the streams. So a lot of it, yeah, our, our stream team, we got to see, we went all over the state and then we were surveying. And So Skippy, we want to talk about all that because it's super interesting. Like when I was on the phone with you yesterday, I was like, God, I wish we, I was just recording this conversation <laughs> because we started talking about all of those things. But I want to backtrack because I want to hear about like you're growing up and and Connie and you mentioned that you were fishing and back before the subdivisions and that place changed all so much. So can you tell us like what that was like growing up and how you got involved in the marine and, you know, estuary and streams? Just just your interest in that. So I, I grew up actually in Kaneohe. And then so like I said, I'm a public uh, school graduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Benjamin Parker Elementary School. I went to King Intermediate and then I went to Castle James B. Castle High School. Yeah, yeah. I graduated in 1975 uh, and then I went to the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, so this is in 75 and then I graduated in December of uh, 1979. Oh, one of my goals was to get out before the 80s oh. with my Bachelor of Science. And then at that time, we also had a Marine Option Program uh, certificate. Marine biology was not taught as an undergraduate. You had to mm-hmm. okay. graduate to study um, marine biology. And at that time, were you were you mostly interested, or thought you were mostly interested in in marine? I wanted to go to ocean, so I was thinking about even going to Leeward Community College. At that time, they had a marine technology program okay. in the Kaleo, the newspaper at UH Manoa. I saw this marine option program. That's how I started. So we had what we call a data acquisition project. So that's how we studied our fishes. We studied algae. We studied the corals. 
and invertebrates. So we worked in the field as well as uh, got our certification and then uh, be able to do field work. And specialty, you mean the organisms that you were working with? People would specialize in fish or hope to do corals and then uh, algae, mm-hmm. algae especially. So it was interesting because I was just uh, thinking back, oh, there was a Heather Spalding. I think she did a, a Limu cookbook. Uh, th- this is all through Sea Grant. At the time, right. Sea had a lot of little projects. Okay. So like the cookbook and then there was a, um, Alvin Tachibana. He became a chef mm. and then he did a shark recipes. And then wow. look. <laughs> yeah, so all, all those kinds of things. Some of us also then volunteered. Uh, so we worked, say, at that time, still was fishing games under uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Some of my classmates uh, went on the cruises up to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And things. Wow, cool. We, we basically got our training at Marine Option Program. And Was this at the same time? Because you were saying you were sending Limu to Isabella Abbott. Yeah, she'd have been there. Yeah, well, like, how was the tie-in with Limu and that? You said like 20 years you were. Actually, I became the biologist here on Maui. Oh, okay. 1985. I had mm-hmm. already graduated in 79. For Division of Aquatic Resources, you're there. Uh, it became the Division of Aquatic Resources. Uh, from Fish and Game, it switched over. So when I started, I was an intern in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then I worked my way up as a biologist uh, with aquatic resources. Wow. I started as an intern. I had some projects that I worked with. One of them was the Waikiki Diamond Head, the shoreline fisheries management area, mm-hmm. where we closed Waikiki for two years. Right. First year we opened to only pole and line fishing. And then the second year we opened to all types of fishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not too supportive. What they did was these, it's one of doing something for management and what they did was went on a year on and year off. Yeah. Yeah. It just started on again. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> we had said they should at least close for two years. Okay. It was just more to rest the po- uh, the population pressure. I see. Right. It, it's really hard. We're, we're trying to work with uh, giving people access. But what we then have is then we have this huge effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, people overfish the area. Mm-hmm. Right. People right. crabbed until there was no crab. And then right. crabbing isn't really sufficient. And, and yeah. it's interesting because it's also, uh, for me, it's watching technology change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The fishing technology. As well as buying nets. So nets are ordered by mail. Yeah. Right. You wouldn't be making your own net. You wouldn't be making it. I was going to say back up because we still didn't figure out how you go from marine to freshwater. Was it the bee, the organisms that and that, that connection? Like what got you to the streams? Well, I was interested when I came to Maui. So now, like I said, I'm living in Iao, next to Iao Stream. So it's been changed back to Wailuku Stream. Mm-hmm. But in Iao Stream, I used to go with an aquarium net. And then I catch post larvae at the bridge. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, I don't know if you know, the Wailuku McDonald's. Yeah. So that's the Wailuku Bridge. So I go in an aquarium net and collect post larvae. And so I did that for 15 years. Wow. Okay. All right. That's how I started studying streams. But I started with the post larvae and then collect uh, animals as they were migrating upstream. Uh, what, my question was, are they still trying to migrate even though we've diverted and we've channeled? Right. Out? 
Okay, but before we get to that, here's a question I want to know about your family, like, because you're clearly like so interested in the ocean and the streams and everything. Did you, did your family grow up fishing? Did they grow up making net? Did you grow up around that culturally or was it all just like observing and learning from other people or? My dad and my uncle were actually fishermen on the bay. So they used to fish in Kanye Bay. Yeah. But they did not do any deep sea fishing, but they did shallow hand, hand lining. Okay, so you grew up with that. Yeah, so we were doing that. We were crabbing. Yeah. This is when they also used to plant little neck clams in oh. Kanoe Bay. And so clamming also was available. to Being able to catch crabs as well as we could get ogo. You could go to Kogai or all these places and, and gather limu. And, and then, like I said, then with spears, we also, was, uh, well, we call it squidding. Uh, yeah. catch octopus or hay yeah. right. in the bay. And, and what was real interesting way back when I think about it, because we had a flat bottom boat and then we would go on the different reefs. Uh, so that's why it's interesting because later on, then I was able to work with uh, Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is after many years. I, I worked with jo- Paul Jokio as well as Clay Rogers. And then so we started studying corals and things, but I was already here on Maui. So we okay. So support, and then we started doing. We're monitoring corals, and, and the thing about the monitoring corals was we used the uh, Nikonos to photograph which slides of our site. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Wait a week and wait for the slides to get developed, and then the slides would be shown on the wall, and we'd have fifty random points. Everything's all done on the computer now. Fifty random points. The computer does it for you, right? So that's why the marine option program training that we did. We studied uh, not just the Hawaiian names, but the scientific names. But then we also learned the Japanese, the common names, what people call. That's so cool. So interacting with the fishermen, we could talk about the Hawaiian names for fishing or, you know, and then basically our conversation, a lot of times when we talk with fishermen, you learn more than just the fishing. Right, of course. Uh, And you find out about the history or, you know, it's like when we talk story. Yeah. I'm going to get to hear a little bit more as well as their stories and where they grew up, other experiences that they had. So it was nice. Yeah. You're about to kind of go into what you, the way that you guys were going and using different parts of the reef when you're fishing with your uncle and your dad. When you started doing it for work, did it change the way you kind of were looking at these places or thinking about the places that you used to go? Or uh, I think what it is, is you then get to notice the changes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That now getting older and then now that I'm now retired. So when you're young as a young biologist and things, then I kind of wanted to do a, a lot of things when I came to Maui. Sure. Right. So I had a kupuna at the Sarah Almo and then there was Luther Kanai Sr. So they took me fishing at the Sarah actually. By coincidence, we were doing first aid course. And then I talked to her because she came from Keanai. And so I explained I wanted to study Oopu and Opai and Kiwai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she told me, oh, come. And this is her stream. So she recommended I study Palahulu stream in Kianai. I started studying as well as gathering information. So over time, I that as my study site. That's right. awesome. Uh, I studied the fishes. I studied the shrimps, mm-hmm. uh, the opai. And then I am now, I finished with the hihivai. And in fact, that's why I was saying I just finished my 
EHY sampling. So even though I'm retired, this is my third year. You're still going. Yeah, you're still <laughs> in the field. I'm still sampling the streams. So what I'm trying to see is hopefully with Yin Fang that they'll be able to go and study that as well as this weather change. Yeah. Because mm. I, I kind of how this weather change is very different. We used to depend upon uh, regular trade wind weather. Mm-hmm. Right. It would depend on, let's say, uh, a rainy season. Yeah. yeah. So same like now. So when we had that rain just a little while ago, so it was like a winter rain, but then it dried up really quickly. Yeah, real fast. But uh, we have to watch because the storms. So like I said, five, 10 inches of rain would just drop. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. We never had it like that before. Right. We had two or three and then maybe then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, afternoon or evening rains would pass mm-hmm. through the island. But it's like that. But you wouldn't know that unless you're a fisherman or a farmer, then out uh, in the field and you're, you pay attention to things like that. So same, same like field work. I try to take on uh, students and interns and things uh, or when I have classes and I always present to the public. So before I used to always talk about the tsunamis and then the flash flooding and streams. So I kind of touch upon that just to make them aware, knowing that the stream could flash flood and things so that they'd be aware, they'd be prepared. And one more thing, rat lungworm. I saw oh that. Gosh, yeah. I was... So that's what I was concerned here because yeah. we've not had rat lungworm associated with, say, Hihibai. So thank goodness. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. We have had, it's like on the big island, that is a picture from Darokuamo'o. There was a slug in the stream that happens on the big island. So if you see that slug, then also be aware. It could be there, yeah. You might be at risk. So also in the streams, then we also have uh, leptospirosis. Right. Sometimes uh, take doxycycline. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also be aware. And then so on the marine side, then there's ciguatera. Yeah, right. depress the yeah. There's some dangers oh, out there, yeah. but yeah. Oh, we did parasites in, from southeastern Louisiana. We took samples. Oh, we were looking at the opu, and then he was looking at the opu and looking at the parasites. They had gotten the parasites from our mosquito fish, our guppy, our tails, oh, okay. transferred what? to the right. opu, oh, wow. and then now we have those Oh, wow. Parasites. Okay. Sorry, and I'm going to another no, story. No, I mean, this is awesome. <laughs> no, it's all right. Now, with the fires. Now, I think I have to go and talk about the wildfires and things. More than just Lahaina, we had three fires going on. So on the first day, a uh, fire occurred. I was with the uh, estuary team. We were serving Kealia Pond, and then the winds. The winds were uh, mm-hmm. sort of like getting sandblasted. Ripping, the- yeah. But we were we did our sampling there, and then on the second day we went to Honomanu, so we went to East Maui, and then that, but that night then we decided okay, you no, know, the team's gonna go back. What happened was everybody was evacuating on the island. Yeah, right. We didn't want to contribute to the traffic. We were thinking about trying to go around the backside of Kakuloa and go right. sample our Honokohau site. But we delayed a month and we came back and we did Honokohau. You said you went back later, like a month later. Did you see anything that could say, oh? No, uh, nothing. But but we were able to do a regular sampling. 
I have a question that's actually comes from a, I'm going to give a shout out to a good friend of mine, Van Velasco, who's actually, he left teaching, um, a teaching job to go back to school and he's looking at Oopu and diet over on Kauai and, and Hyena. And, uh, he was saying, oh my God, I have so many questions for Uncle Skippy. But so I went to his presentation, like to show what he was going to do for his research project. And one of the things that blew my mind is he was pulling up some accounts of how much Oopu were being harvested from the streams. And so it's kind of a when this was like so new pepper times yeah old times like mahele maybe that right and so it never really occurred to me that of course like that would be such a, a major and hiivai as well but such a major food source and i'm kind of curious is just the abundance the numbers sounded unbelievable and so i'm just curious what your thoughts are on the changes in that but then also tied to that is to what extent are people still relying on the opu in the stream and fishing for opu and how much to what extent that's still going on uh, i i think it happens on a subsistence level Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it, it's interesting because during my career, aquatic resources wanted to go back and take a look. And so what they did and how the regulation changed was uh, they prohibited the sale of freshwater animals. Okay. So when they first uh, passed the law, what happened was I had people who gathered opai. And then so I worked with our enforcement. There was a key KL. He used to be head of our doe care enforcement. And I explained to him that the regulation got passed. But what happened was people had opai that they had gathered and had in the freezer. But it was for orders because they had gathered it for uh, graduation parties. So it was in the freezer. Right. So they gathered. They had made the orders already. Keith understood that. So he said he would allow them to be able to sell the opai at that time, even though the, the law had passed. I also had uh, agreement from the gatherers themselves. Yeah. They said mm-hmm. best to protect the population so that they could get opai in the future. And so for our listeners, like just to explain opai, we're talking the shrimp. Yeah. And the opu that Clay was talking about earlier is the Hawaiian gobi and how abundant it used to be. Maybe because we have listeners from all over the world, maybe you can just describe for our listeners what the Oopu is and what its life cycle is and how unusual it is as a species. First, the Oopu. The Oopu are, uh, uh, we have uh, four gobies and then uh, what they call sleepro iliotrid. The Oopu, once they return or they migrate, uh, then they'll live the rest of their lives in the streams. Will return from where though? What they'll do is the larvae will will, will hatch and the larvae will go out to the sea, into the ocean. And so what they've been studying is that uh, they wanted to find out, do the larvae need to go all the way to the sea or, or places like, say, Hanale? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What happens is there's a saltwater wedge. And so now that we study the streams and rivers a lot better, what happens is the saltwater wedge moves up the stream. Oh. So the larvae may not need to actually go into the ocean, but just come down to the mouth, and then that saltwater wedge would be enough of that conversion for them to then basically become post larvae and then migrate back upstream. Okay. The short story is that they live, they have the life cycle in both freshwater and salt water, right? At different stages of their life. Yes, they've evolved uh, from as marine animals, they still need to come back to the ocean. In two, three months, what happens is the animals. So whether it's the oopu, after the eggs hatch, the larvae will go to the ocean, the opai, the shrimp. Um, so the opai, it's called Atioida bisulcata. Well, that's the one that uh, people 
harvest. And that's the one they call mountain opai. And then there's another opai or shrimp they call opai oeha'a. Opai oeha'a is the native uh, prawn. Oh. Okay. Like the fiddler crab, one claw is bigger than the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that when I was monitoring Eyal Stream, when they returned the water into Eyal Stream, I had opai oeha'a migrating upstream. That's so cool. That summer. Uh, coming up the stream. But for that 10 or 15, uh, 12 years that I was monitoring where they released the water, mm-hmm. they did not come upstream. They come up in the other streams uh, mm-hmm. from Waihehu. But Iyao, uh, I was able to document that Opai Oeha would migrate up into Iyao stream. Coming back. Yes. And so cool. Back. And then, so the uh, last thing that I studied was the Hihivai. The family is called Neritidae. So this is the same family as the Kupe'e. And then there's a, what we call a PPP. It's a black mm-hmm. shell. Little ones. Uh, you find on the rocks. Yeah. And then, but then we also have their cousins. So you have the Neratina, Vespertina, or the uh, Hapavite. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like brown. And then they have growth rings on the shell. And then, but the Hihivite, we have these yellow spots. And even at as small as one millimeter, you see these yellow spots. So that's what I always tell the students. To look for the yellow spots. And so what happens is the students get to see that. And then when they see even the small ones and they'll look and then the yellow spots, they know it's right. And that one will migrate upstream. That one will go upstream. So I think it's worth talking about how the Oopu migrate upstream. It's pretty cool. Can you describe it? And maybe also the Hihivai and like how far they go and what they do? Actually, I'm wearing my old ah. shirt. Somebody. Oh, nice. Got all the life cycle. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Yeah. So of the Oopu, so on the bottom is this Oopu Nakea. Oopu Nakea is our biggest Oopu. So this will grow over a foot long. That's so cool. What's interesting, and, and this is, like I said, you know, you don't know about it until my dad used to talk story and he used to say, they used to catch Oopu and they used to use earthworms. Oh my God. Oh, wow. Wow. It was interesting because way back then, so it was more farming in Kaneohe and things. Yeah, yeah. They do that as well as then he also told me that he used to use a red cloth and they'd catch frogs. Oh, uh, funny. With, with the hook. And, and a red cloth, they can catch frog. Mm-hmm. So with the underwater cameras, I started taking video. Oh, cool. And so that's one of the things I did. Like I said, I wanted to show. So even the climbing up. Yeah. So the Oopu have this huge pelvic fin on the bottom. So it's like a suction cup. So this is what allows them to remain in the high, high velocity of the streams. So they're able to hold and then it kind of stabilizes them. Or, or they'll actually they'll pick for food and then come to the bottom. And then eat yeah. uh, out, out of the current and things. Uh, but you get to watch and monitor. And so that's one of the things I learned from uh, Dr. Bob Nishimoto. He used to be the big island biologist. Do all the species of Oopu have the sucker on the bottom where they can climb? So four of the five. Four of the five have it. Okay. And then the one that doesn't have the fused pelvic fin, is it's an iliotrid. They, well, they call it a sleeper. That one is a carnivore. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Oh, wow. Who eat everybody else. So as the fish are coming upstream, they're feeding on the other who trying to come up the stream. Is that one found on all the islands? I think they should be able to find it on all the islands. Wow. Yeah. I never knew about that one. So like to describe it, it's pretty crazy because you see this National Geographic video or whatever, whoever's taking the video of the it going up vertical waterfalls, the Gobi. So that one that they shot, that, that was aquatic resources on the big island. Yeah. And so they were working on, that was the Waipio Falls. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's wild. 
but they also did close-ups with a high-speed camera. Very cool. And that's why when you look at the close-ups, you can see the face and the spots and things. It's so cool. On, on the animals. What's interesting about that video, I should send you the video later, but... <laughs> If you look at the end, you see the post larvae, they're actually opunakia in that besides the opunopili. Opunopili was the one that they were showing the climate mm-hmm. on the waterfall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And do they lay their, okay, to just review, they lay their eggs up at the top? The yellow eggs will be attached to the rock and then they hatch. Oh, they hatch. So for several days, they start hatching. And then they go down. Okay. So for the hihivai and the hapovai, and so what they'll do is they'll lay egg cases. Mm. So what's interesting when you work in hihivai streams and anywhere you go, what happens is they lay these white, bright white egg cases. So when they first lay them, they stand out. Then they turn off white. Okay. That means that the, the larvae have already hatched. Oh, and, and okay. Have, That's so cool. So this is what happens in Iao. So when I first started spotting that they were laying eggs there, then later on what happens is when the rocks wash down, I can see the old egg cases on the rocks. Oh, they're cool. telling me that they're reproducing streams. They're up there. Yes. Um, but anybody else, if they look at the rocks, it's just rocks. And then right. they, we can see the old eight cases on the rock. So it tells me that they've been reproducing. They went up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, also the other thing that they're studying um, is that they're looking at Oopunakea, because Oopunakea, especially on Kauai, what they'll come down is they'll kind of have this mass spawning event. And then after they spawn, then what happens is sort of like with salmon, some of them are spent and then they die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these big bulls then on the bottom of the stream. So that happens in Hanalei. I have that happening in Waihei and some of these other streams. And so sometimes it could be fatal, but other times they may just go back upstream and then wait and spawn again in the future. So I'm not sure what determines whether they it's a you know sort of that last spawn or whether they can keep spawning. Right. Mm-hmm. So for the opai, uh, what's also been interesting is that by knowing that the animals will migrate upstream, because one of the easiest things for the opai is they'll swim in the in the water. And then so that's one of the things that I point out. Mm. When I first started studying Eyal stream, I see these streaks on the water. Oh, yeah. I didn't know what they were. <laughs> so I used my aquarium there. I collected them. And then I grew them out, and then I knew that's the old pie. Oh, how cool. Coming back. You see the streaks on the water. That's amazing. Those are larvae sw- swimming up. Yeah. So, And then I had to find out myself. And so, like in Kailani, so I go to the waterfall. So we're talking, it's flash flooding. Right. I go to the waterfall just to go check. Are they climbing? <laughs> in the flash flood, Skippy. Yeah, this is in the flash flooding and stuff. And then, so what it is, is uh, the place that I have is Bialohe Pond. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been fortunate because when I go and check on the waterfall, I have the pond behind me. So it's not when you work from by the ocean, you have to be careful. Sometimes you have these freak sets will come in right. and, and then they'll slam you. What is like OPE picking. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, you're not looking that way either, yeah. right? <laughs> and then that's how people drown. Okay? They're not prepared. Yeah. But but it's, it's it's sort of like with the field work, then you understand what are the dangers and, right. the, and be aware of your environment. We were normally uh when we work in the streams, so sometimes we have to hike in two, three hours. Mm. Right. Hike in two, three hours, maybe get one or two hours in the stream and then have to hike back out two, three hours. And then so when we were starting to do uh, water sampling, mm. so we go in, we sample, mm-hmm. then I have to hike out with, with the, the water. water. Oh, my God. <laughs> so what was really interesting is that we got certified to go and fly with the helicopter. Oh, okay. Right. So for East Maui, we 
use a helicopter to fly in. So they drop us on the beach and then we hike to the stream and do our surveys. But when we do this water sampling, it's so convenient with the helicopter. You fill up the water bottles and <laughs> throw out this helicopter and, then, and I don't have to hike out with the water and then have to go filter the water oh my gosh totally. with a cooler of samples or something i mean as you're like sort of following all these creatures did that essentially kind of keep leading you further and further and further up the mountains i mean in the sense of where most of your work is being done are you more coastal or or as you're trying to figure out like how far up are these guys going is that kind of was it progressive or were you from the get-go you're like we gotta go to the top and just see where Actually, what I was doing was I had to do my marine uh, surveys. Okay. I go on the boat Monday through Friday, and then on the weekends, and then I do the stream. Seven days a week. Okay. You're like at the top of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, so really convenient. So what happened was one time I was doing a drift survey. Mm-hmm. I was putting a drift net into Yao Stream. And so this is a Sunday. So I put my three drift nets out because I'm in the stream, so you have to hike down yeah. and come yeah. into this. So I, I see this uh, husband and wife start coming down because they want to come and then they wanted to talk start and i find out these are doctors dr hiram and judy lee they actually retired but they're at oregon state university and they came here for vacation they saw me in the stream they saw with the nets (laughs) so i explained to her what i was doing she's an aquatic entomologist oh no way oh so she had the same idea she's like i'm gonna go Wander around in these streams. Right. <laughs> she's, a, she's a stream person. Right. And she saw me in the stream, so she handed down. She said, oh, I want to find out. What I'm... That's how my first introduction with them. And so since then, we have students that go to Oregon State University. Awesome. That's great. The students, when they come back to Maui, will come back and say, oh, Hiram and Judy said to say hello. Right. That's, That's great. That's so cool. Like I said, you know, it, it's sometimes fortuitous. Yeah. yeah. I don't know who they were. Or, you know, I get to meet people even from all around the world. Yeah. Filmmakers and they come from all around. Well, being on Maui. Yeah. Right, right. I kind of try not to get too technical (laughs) because I know they're here on their vacation. Yeah. (laughs) But then I kind of explain what I'm doing and then I get to show them. Oh, I'm sure it was a pleasure for them. I'm sure they were in heaven. (laughs) So there's many, many years. So now they've retired. And then her husband, Hiram Lee, is also uh, head of cooperative fisheries for Oregon State, you know. No way. It's too cool. Yeah. I think maybe one of the other things I kind of thought back in my mind, um, I went to public schools, like I said, but in public schools, you don't do public speaking. That's what you were saying. Right. Yeah. So in high school, I, I was in this interact uh, service club sponsored by the Rotary. Mm-hmm. So I'd go to Kanyohe Rotary meetings. After you eat lunch, then you have to speak. Present. Oh, yeah. You have to st- Stand up, right? And I have to give credit to the Rotary and, and the Rotary. I mean, very friendly Rotarians. And coming from public school, you could actually graduate from public school and never do public speaking and choose not to do mm-hmm. that. And But it helped prepare me. And so I, I tell that, and even Ho'olauna, Kamehameha schools. So like I said, we have the kids also stand up and introduce themselves in Hawaii. That's so great. And so that's one of the things. I, I really support the program. Yeah, yeah. And then, I take them in the streams. And then, so when I'm gathering the hihi by what I do is I actually measure 
the hihi wai that I collect. So what I'll do is I'll use fingernail polish to mark the hihi wai. So what happens is by putting the fingernail polish on the hihi wai, I get the students' interest in yeah. watching the animals. Because if they watch long enough, what they'll do is they start forming lines. They follow the leader. Oh, cute. That is so awesome. And then they start migrating. And that, that, that's uh, one of the things that the students told me that they remember. So I said, I pick whatever color I can get from Long's Drugstore, whatever cheap uh, fingernail polish. And then I got to find out what kind of fingernail polish. So there's like rainbow color. Right, right. <laughs> and then so I started doing that because I have one with my students one week and Fun. then the next week I'll change a different color or something but that's kind of like what we did for Ho'olauna the animals will actually migrate upstream and then you won't see them so did you have that as part of your work responsibility where they was you was was the your job like you got to do I, I introduced the students to the native Hawaiian stream ecosystem right so fish and game way back in the 50s they introduced different animals so on the marine right. side introduced the roy the api and the to'au into uh the ocean wanted to supplement or increase the fishing so in the streams they introduced what we call tahitian prawns so the macrobacchium lar was introduced i didn't know they did that intentionally they introduced them to both molokai and oahu there they spread throughout the islands crazy macrobacchium lar is a present on all the islands right so like i said remember i said two prawns the mm-hmm. opai oeha and then the macrobacchium lar. Tahitian bronze, you can kind of tell because what they have is it's like yellow bracelets. Mm. That's the Tahitian prawn when they're small. Because when they're smaller, they look like before they get those huge. When they get big, yeah. they have what we call terminal growth male. So you have the big pinchers. Yeah. That's why they say terminal growth. So once you get to that size, all that energy only goes into their claws. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, funny. Body won't get any bigger. Right, right. To Clay's point, you've been doing so many different things, right? So it's like working with the students, working in, you know, surveying for fish, going up into the estuaries, going up into the mountains, like do pretty much like, is there a job you haven't had? Uh, well, I, like I said, when I first came to Maui, I was the lone biologist. I was the aquatic biologist here on Maui. But I do um, shark attacks, porpoise and whale strandings. Oh, wow. All right. At the time, also turtles kind of go around, around the island. And I used to gather turtles and, and then uh, turtles and put it into the freezer and then we'd ship it over to National Marine Fisheries. we we'll do the necropsies and things. When we have marine mammal strandings, then I also work with the veterinarians and the local support when they come. Right. And when we do the necropsy, what's interesting is um, they have a, like a national database. It's interesting is that they took, take two samples. So one, they'll ship back. So just in mm-hmm. case they should lose it, they have a second set of samples for uh, marine mammals. So whales and dolphins and things. Okay. At the time, we used to use a lot more formalin, formaldehyde. So when I was a student, so I used to have to go into ichthyology lab and then you smell like formaldehyde. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> everything kind of switched now over to more alcohol collections. Funny thing, when you think about stream work and the field work and you're out there doing stuff, but so much of it also was back in the lab, right? Under scopes and whatnot, trying to... What's interesting is that data is very important. So like I said, when we were monitoring coral reefs, so, so right. when we started that project, I think the coral reef monitoring we did in 1999, we work with uh, Eric Brown. So Eric helped us set up the monitoring sites, the coral monitoring sites around Maui. Because we'd have to swim from shore and go to these weird places and then we'd find the sites because Eric set them up and then we knew where it was. Yeah. <laughs> 
this is with the university and grad students. We provide vessel support. Uh, they use scuba and things. And then we then check it out. Yeah. So Skippy, I do want to talk about like changes that you have seen because you've been doing this a really, mm. really long time. And there's so many things you've been observing. So maybe you could choose one. <laughs> One area, it could be like fish populations or corals or weather for that matter. Could you tell us some of, you know, one or two major changes or that something you observe over your career? What's interesting, and this is why it was kind of interesting, because I guess what the news got was the uh, Kealia Pond turning pink. Yeah, right, right. And that's this year. Okay. Oh, that's at 2023. And that's why I also, I sent you an email with the photos. This is of the Ulua. Yeah, right. The Ulua from the stream. Yeah. Upon Mao, I had Ulua that died at the Mao. Crazy. So this is August of 2020. Okay. okay. We were already experiencing droughts. It caught my attention because... First, I didn't have Ulua dying before. I'd have the tilapia dying. Oh, God. Yeah. Right. So at the time, and what's interesting is after we do the measurements, then we can estimate that the Ulua are about two, three years old. Wow. Okay. Well, can you back up and explain, one, what is the pink stuff for our listeners who have no idea? Two, why were the Ulua dying of drought? Last year, what happened is that Kealia, we have a pond and then the pond actually breaks and goes into the ocean. What happened is that the salinity or it becomes hypersaline. Okay. So just like the ponds and, you know, like once it evaporates to a certain point. um, So in the past, what's interesting is that Kealia used to have a midge problem. Hmm. Oh, interesting. And it was interesting because they also, I guess, work with entomologists and then they were treating it chemically mm-hmm. to keep the populations down. Oh, wow. And in addition to taking, trying to take care of the birds, we have these droughts. Then what they're also monitoring is for avian uh, botulism. Right. Okay. So what happened is now Kealia has been drying. Mm-hmm. So last year it turned pink. Um, like I said, my concern was way back in 2000. It was already showing me that we weren't getting enough rain. And mm-hmm. the, the pond upside was actually drying out, basically mud flats. Right. And then if you go and look at the pond, say now this year, and then you, if you look at the recent rain, so now the pond's filling back in again. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we're not going to get this continuous pink. I think that right, it'll reduce the salinity. As well as the salinity mm-hmm. in the water probably has changed again. So now we're getting a little bit more water. Hopefully more rain so that it fills, but I'd like to see it break open. Once it breaks open, then what happens is you get this recruitment. So the marine fishes and the mullet. They're going in and out. Go back into the Kelia Pond again. And the Papio do as well. So those guys got trapped, basically. They got trapped, right. So with corner weather, you have low dissolved oxygen at the mouth. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's why when you go take a look at the pictures, so those were the ulu and those were how big. Yeah. So with that, what's interesting is that pigs came down. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, but, but it kind of tells you, but it's also, like I said, that we get to learn the ecosystem. You're right. Yeah. We keep five pigs were also at the mouth. So a little pig. Also, we have deer and we also have sheep, and you know, that will come down. Oh, I know. Right. Like everything. And these are all introduced. To the yeah. Island. Well, it, and it's it's so cool the stream work because you know so much of the folks that I work with in my background is with plants and you're kind of always Malka right like you want to go at the tops of the mountains but the how it's just amazing to me how much 
is of these dreams are intact still like all the way down right that connectivity Mm -hmm. where you're in these lowland areas maybe areas that you're kind of urbanized for the most part and you still are seeing some cool things in there yeah when we had to choose sites to monitor so this is back before so it's sort of like what the coral reef monitoring you know we choose you're limited in manpower limited in time and then i was looking for stream areas to monitor at the time we were proposing makamaka ole stream and Kahakuloa stream. Yeah. When I had to assess the situation, Kahakuloa stream was being harvested. Interesting. Because people live down there, they harvest. Oh, you mean locally? I, I didn't want to conflict. Yeah. So I'd be collecting animals for science, but I did not want to interfere with them collecting from Kahakuloa stream. So I chose Makamakaole stream to sample. Only problem when I chose Makamakaole stream, it's a small stream. Mm-hmm. So I stayed there for three hours. So I parked there next to the stream. Then I had all these people who farmed or lived in Kakuloa and stuff. So they stopped by and come and talk stories. Yeah, oh, that's cool, though. I got to meet people. I love that. They were How much you would have learned, yeah. right? They tell me share stories about Kakuloa. That's why it's nice to be able to. They're not going to totally share stuff with you, especially with the kupuna. So what I've kind of learned over time. Right. Because some of it is just, they're kind of feeling you out. Yeah. So they'll ask you questions if you've really been in the streams and if you really seen stuff. So a lot of times, too, it's also being truthful what you see. And so, like I said, the Kupuna told me if I want to study Oopu, mm-hmm. I should go in the stream and go catch Oopu by hand. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, interesting. And that's what I did. Okay. By doing that, it also taught me the patience. So when I had to video or photo the animals, I could right. come back with my camera. The animals would still be there. So when I, this was before the big flood, I'd come in and I hit different sites. The fish would get used to me. Then I could come in close and get the close. They got to know you. And then that's how I got some of the photo. So I had two old who actually. In my shot, in, they call it photo bombing now. But what happened is this turtle <laughs> to the photo, and then it was, wow, what a great shot! And it was just totally by accident. Yeah, they like you. <laughs> I explained that with the kids. You have to be careful, and you have to be patient. Patient. That was Makamaka Ole. So, like, is that your favorite one? Like, do you have a favorite place on East Maui and West Maui, or are they all your favorite? I really don't have a favorite. But what, what the conditions here on Maui have taught me because of the diverted streams, I've gone in to check places where I don't think people should go and check. And I've gone in and I've checked with, say, two, three inches of water with my mask on, and I found post larvae. You're kidding. Oh, wow. Making it in. All the diversions and things. That's also one of the things that I always tell the other folks who want to study in the streams, I say, if you're not sure, go look. Yeah. Surprise at what you'll find. If you get the patience and occasionally you'd be surprised because I, and K and I, I used to do the different streams. So I'd stop and I didn't even know what the name of the stream is. So I put the mileage mark down and then put, the stream, put my mask on and I look and then I see all these ponds looking at me in, in the stream and things. You also look, have to learn the animals, the Oopu Alamo'o. And then once they start getting settled and then they're migrating upstream, when the water or when it starts to evaporate or stream levels go down, what happens is most of the animals get thrown into the pools. Where you just sit in the pools and then watch. You'd be surprised. And all the Tons of stuff. Come out. Yeah. They're, they're, under the, they're in there. 
they're in and they're, they're hidden. And, and then the one that will dominate is actually the big macrobrachium lar. Like I said, the terminal growth male will come out and just, and in fact, the prawns will come. They're not afraid of you. They'll come in and. <laughs> yeah. I have a question about this, the, the diversions. I mean, there's so many questions about the diversions, but. Um, you know, we've talked a bit, we were talking, we had, um, Jonathan Shure on, and we were talking about the in-stream flow standards and like how, the, you know, the problems behind how and when they were set. But I'm just curious, like from the changes that you've seen where they're now releasing more water. And I can imagine that it benefits the stream aquatic animals, like incredibly, but I'm like curious what you think the landscape would look like the greenness of things around the streams, like how that changes or what you've seen change and how it would look different where you have water that water weren't diverted. So now I'm not working for the state anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> It's what we were waiting for. Yeah, exactly. So I've always recommended continuous flow in the streams. Let me preface that way. When we had that flooding at, in Haiku, I think people have to understand that if we didn't have that diversion, that diversion helped protect a lot right. of the stream properties. Yeah, yeah. There's benefits as well, right? People are looking afterwards, kind of looking, you know, after the disaster, not understanding that if we didn't have the diversion on top, that delayed big water from coming and washing out the property on the bottom. It did get washed out, but it was delayed rather than there was no diversion. They would have got it instantly. They would have got washed out. Yeah, way worse. Way back, the Office of State Planning at one time had proposed they wanted to choose one stream on each island and allow that stream to flow continuously. Mm. It never happened, but I had supported them, and, but it never got implemented. When I, I looked at the decision, so I looked at the Navai Eha decision, and, and that's why I'm um, enthusiastic that they establish in-stream flows. So even though it's interim stream flows, they, in, they decided it now, whereas Navai Eha took about 12 years and it had to go to the Supreme Court for a decision. Yeah, I support the interim in-stream flow. Mm -hmm. So to do that, we also did surveys so that the Water Commission could have data. You know, yeah. we interviewed Suzanne Case and she was talking just about exactly this. And so and talking about like when she was chair that this was they were able to do it for I don't know how many dozens of streams. So this rests on the work that you did. Other people, too, but like that you are part of that. Yeah. We wanted to make sure they had sufficient data to then be able to propose an in-stream flow. Uh, but the way that the water code is established, it's the water commission that will make the decision. Mm -hmm. What I don't like about this restoration of flow is what they did with the diversion. They pulled the sluice gates. What does that mean? So there's a gate that controls the water. Yeah. They pulled the gates so the water flows down. Okay. So now I'm retired and I'm no longer there. That's okay. <laughs> now he now can you say can it. Say now it. he can yeah. speak. If you want to divert water, they put the sluice gate back and they can divert water again from those streams. Right. They did not remove the diversion. The actual, the actual structure. Right. Yeah. So it's easy to turn it back. This was being controlled by A and B. Yeah. So I wanted A and B to be responsible and have A and B pay to restore the stream. Yeah. Yeah. That was their first established for irrigation the diversion system. But what they've done is they modified the diversion. The problem I see in the Water Commission and even the Water Commissioners, they don't get to see and diversions. 
for a lot of the streams, there are multiple diversions on the stream. It's not a clear explanation of the flow in the stream. Mm-hmm. I know we're talking about Malka to Makai flow, right. but it could be diverted on top and then the water is all to flow down below. Or some of those diversions might like still be a barrier biologically. Yes, they are. But in the East Maui diversion, what I was disappointed, I looked at the decision and then comments on that and put that at least for the record. I also commented that they're diverting 90% of the water in the stream. I kind of wanted to call attention to that, but nobody listened. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I think they allowed EMI to present one figure about the diversion in East Maui, and yet I couldn't understand what that figure meant or where was it measuring or how they come up with this one number. Yeah. Right. Because what I wanted them to do was to monitor each diversion, how much water is diverted at this elevation. Because what happens is that you find places, there's a manual Lewis ditch. They have a water tunnel. Water tunnels are not talked about, but water tunnels are put into the mountain and they divert more water. What, what, what the water tunnels are doing is actually they're diverting dike water. Right. So dike water is coming out and then they'll capture it in the diversions. And that's not been discussed. Right. Uh, overall, it needs to be discussed more fully. And I noticed that USGS also doesn't discuss it. What they did was they sometimes diverted the water, went to a different level, get diverted maybe on the next level, and then it might actually eventually takes the water. And that was being sent to Central. So it's same, same with the Waikamoi diversion. So when they were doing the Waikamoi diversion, and they were talking about all these leaks, and so what I had told them was instead of maintaining these leaks in the system, put PVC pipe, why let this water be lost in the leak? If you're going to divert the water, then don't let the water leak from simply, and that's one of the criticisms of the whole EMI system. So at the time that they build it, it it's miraculous because it's, like I said, gravity fit. Yeah. It's control of the water. I was just going to say, so just to clarify, to summarize, when folks on the private side are talking about the millions of gallons per day or whatever, or diversions, they're sometimes only talking about one out of, let's just say, three diversions in a stream. Like, So it's not the full complement of what is being actually diverted. In addition to these dike underground diversions that most people don't even know about or talk about. Yeah, it's always been the problem mm-hmm. because when you ask for hard numbers, then there really hasn't been. It's not, mm. yeah. Then EMI then says, oh, well, we don't have it monitored. They're diverting the water and all you got to do is put a gauge, but why not make them responsible and pay for the monitoring? Right. What is the actual amount? But, but again, that's up to the Water Commission. <laughs> so that's kind of what I had to, uh, to be able to live with. And yeah. Then, and so when I have the diversion, and then we go up above, and like I said, and then we find post largely. But again, you are not going to get healthy populations because the diversion has been put in the stream, and then so animals don't have access. But the opai, like I said, with the flooding, mm-hmm. the opai was up, and then you find opai in the upper elevations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and my my question about the diversions, and just think my thinking about the diversions, and this is obviously related to stuff that I work on, but I I just am always so curious about, you know, how these riparian areas and and Lo'i in particular would, would help to disrupt the, you know, the, the fire risk around communities. And then, you know, if you have all these diversions historically that were for agriculture, that's no longer being practiced, like what, I mean, you know, where it's going in some, in some instances, but 
that trade-off between maintaining infrastructure to allow us to do irrigated agriculture in the future, maybe on these lands versus, you know, full on kind of ecological restoration for those purposes. I mean, I'm trying to think about what are the trade-offs as far as. Can I, I bring up um, please so Yao Stream? We have two flood control projects. So Yao Stream and Kahoma Stream on the Lahaina side. Right. For Yao Stream, this is the Corps of Engineers. Their last proposal was that they were going to modify the stream, take ex- excessive water, and then put that into, say, fields. The only problem with the Corps of Engineers' proposal was that they just said for farming. Right. In my comments, I put in, I would recommend taro patches. Yeah. So the, with the low E, what happens is the water is used and then the water is put back into the stream. Right. So you get this continuous flow in the stream, and, and that would allow this connectivity mm-hmm. of the stream to the ocean. But it would also benefit because in our good streams, our good streams have good estuaries. And right. that also benefits our marine fisheries also. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Corps of Engineers did not specifically say taro patches, and I recommended it and then but yet if you go and look at the agriculture they're raising bananas right if they're raising bananas all they could do is just take the water water the bananas and then the water yeah just out into the field well and then that was the right that was the argument that the plant the sugar planters use they're like well it's just another crop and you're like whoa 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 <laughs> that's also the change there's an emma nakuina and she talked about hawaiian water rights if you look at what she had originally discussed on Hawaiian water rights. And then I, I also referred to a Perry. So Perry was one of the justices that reviewed, and he basically copied what she said, but he changed the definition to say agriculture. Mm, there it was. Whereas she specifically said water is for Kalo. Kalo, right, right. And that is very, well, to me, it's clear. Yeah. They knew, and like I said, also for food and agriculture. Yeah. In the meantime, then you have sugar and pineapple. Mm-hmm. And all he did was just modify the definition to say agriculture in general yeah. and not be specific about taro. Yeah. You used to have this Aluna who would be in charge of the water. And so he made sure that everybody got water for their taro patches. And that's one of the reasons why there's a uh, a case that 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 was the ruling was against Pioneer Mill Kumuli'ili case. Yeah, the, that was the first, right? That was the the eighteen ninety four or something. But it was recorded, but not implemented. Yeah. So that's why when you talk to KL Moku and the other folks, Kaula Valley, and we we start getting into other uh, <laughs> other other situations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's but it's the same. So. For Kahoma Stream, like I said, it's one of two streams that are diverted. Not diverted, but flood control project. And then they, what they do is they channelize the stream. The Kahoma Stream, so I was able to document that the post library were trying to migrate up Kahoma. When we get these freshets, they'll bring down this population of Opunakea. So when you look, then you have the Opunakea all on the bottom, and then people are harvesting. So, oh, wow. Uh, the folks, the Filipinos and the folks who eat opunakea were gathering and catching them. Gathering. By the stringers in, in Kahoma Stream. Yeah. But but it, again, it happens. And so we, we try to help document that over time. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time, but right. I mean that the animals are still that they're, migrating. They're using it. Yeah. 
No, no. I think Jonathan cites that example in his, in his book, the water and power book. Talk about what you found there. Yeah. Yeah. I need to go and see that book, read that book. Yeah. I'll send it to you. I send it to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, Skippy, we've had you on for some time and I do want to kind of close with your, with your thoughts about where, where you would like to see you know, some of the stream protection work. I mean, it's clear, you know, <laughs> what you'd like to see, what we all would like to see. But I, I guess broadening on that, do you see, and this was sort of like the last question we had on our on our list, what changes have you seen just in the awareness and understanding of protecting, you know, some of these places? I think it's a lot better. I've been invited and uh, gone and work with the uh, Kula Kayopuni. So these are the classes like in West Maui. And then so they've been taking the kids into the different tarot patches. Well, they have that knowledge and experience in the tarot patches. Yeah. The students now take it beyond us just talking about, oh, okay, tarot. Mm-hmm. Right. So like I said, with the Ho'olana program, we have them pound poi and things, the pa'i'ai. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and then or pound breadfruit for them to taste it. And then mm-hmm. they help prepare it. Yeah. And, it's that kind of experiences that I think it's good for the next generation. But I, I think also I'd recommend they talk to the kupuna or the elders. When we get older, we kind of now get decades of information and decades right. of experiences and things. So the reason I call attention to the ulua and things is die-off of the ulua occurred before the, uh, mm. the font turned pink. Yeah, right, right. yeah. Okay, telling me it was drying and uh, we were getting hypersemic. And, and so people don't understand that because hypersemic means that it's saltier than the ocean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't drink the water and things, but uh, the different animals and the organism have to try to survive. It, it's to kind of call attention to that. The recommendation I have for the kids is that if they get the opportunity to travel, is to go travel and visit uh, their experiences. It, it's just uh, the world is out there. When the students come back, and it's interesting because they all grew up in Hawaii. They go away. What happened is they get bombarded by Hawaiiana questions. Right. <laughs> they want to know or they study Kula or they then become Akamai. When they were here as students, they really weren't paying any attention. Yeah, totally. Yeah. To the water, to the weather, a little bit more aware. And so I appreciate that. Uh, but also they have to be aware also that technology is changing. Even when I used to take pictures with slides. So I said, I'm from that right. generation, but I never had computer. So I found flabbergasted. I said, you can yeah. do everything on the computer. You can. Enter. You know, my buddy Van, they're doing like eDNA sampling, right? Where you just, everything that's in there. <laughs> so even on the eDNA, because I was telling you about how we put the water samples in the helicopter. Yeah, we take the, the we come back to the airport. We got to go to the office and we got to go filter the water. All right. So now they have a backpack system. They're filtering the water. Always we take the sample and we fix the sample, and then we don't need Perfect. to take the water. It's done all in the field. That's amazing. I'm so I'm so jealous. Yeah, <laughs> all that time. <laughs> you know, you you're having instruments that you're measuring salinity, measuring temperature. You know, it, it's giving a whole variety of mm-hmm. things accuracy that you are kind of yeah. unreal i remember salinity with just a refractometer yeah <laughs> old school <laughs> well you're still doing it skippy which is so cool because when i called to leave a message for you they're like oh he's in this is at the deal in our office he's in the field <laughs> <Which is like, laughs> they're like, but don't worry he'll be back because he's here all the time <laughs> so it just speaks to your love of 
of being in the field and not slowing down whatsoever. You're you're at it, which is and it's just so cool to see you. You're so engaged with yeah, everybody. Yeah, we're, we're glad they're holding your desk for I you know. there. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you caught me on the right time. I, I just did my hee-hee-bye sampling. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. I That's awesome. Ball, I really we're yeah. going to go look and find the little lines of them marching up the, up the stream. I know. Now I want to go do stream surveys and all and like inspired. Well, thank you so much, Skippy. It's been so, so fun to talk with stories with you and hear about your life and your work. I'm, I'm real glad for my family. Mm-hmm. Guys, like I said, my mom and my dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so my mom knew we wanted to do fishing. And and so so actually my dad passed away in high school. Oh. The deal we made with my mom was that she said, if you wanted to go fish, you got to clean yard on Saturdays. So we clean yard on Saturday, Sunday we go fishing. But again, I, I've never stopped fishing or gathering it. Right. Oh, but again, it, it's to have the students experience that. Right. Yeah. So even when I do the hee by collecting and things, it's sort of like an Easter egg hunt. And then the portal locks. And then once they see and what once they, they know, there's something that they can carry on. And I said, you know, you're going to learn things you know, right. by just being aware. You know, old style is always not to ask questions. Keep quiet and not ask questions. Observe, yeah. But, you know, we've kind of learned that the students need to sometimes ask questions, but you don't give them all the answers. You kind of keep them. Go try and check under the rocks. Or go try and check under the pool in the pool and things, and, and then they'll they'll pick up things. And, and but again, also identifying plants. Yeah, yeah. You're our first talking really about like streams and marine. It's on our entire show, so this is this is great. We we really appreciate it, Skippy. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. Well, when you come to Maui, you come in. I know, I know. We totally got to go like check out the streams. Seriously. Yeah, we should go play in the streams. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>